Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. I'm 10 years older now, mid-30s, compared to, you know, mid-20s with excruciating knee pain. Hello, probably from, like, having a desk job and, and doing some running but not doing much else. Now I don't have knee pain. At an age where people are like, just wait until you're mid-30s, you're going to have so much pain. Or I'm like, no, I feel really good. I actually feel better than when I started training. But, like... If I had started training and I'm in that much pain, I would never would have trained my body to the point where it was just more well-balanced. Hey everyone, it's Meredith, and you're listening to our podcast, the Afternoon Snack Podcast. And in today's episode, we're gonna expand on a topic that we discussed on Instagram a few weeks ago, and that is the topic of body recomposition which is the simultaneous gain of lean muscle mass and loss of body fat, the holy grail of nutrition and exercise goals, the unicorn, the unattainable, or is it unattainable? We don't think so. And we talk about the science that shows how attainable this actually is for most people. We hope you enjoy this episode. find it a little bit awkward when people are like, Hey, how's it going? And what I say is like, yeah, it's good. I'm busy. But like, I don't want that to be perceived as number one, like a negative thing. And also that I don't want to give them my time. And I don't know, like busy just has this negative thing to it. Yeah. But, but I think it's because people typically use it when they're like, no, can't. Sorry. Too busy. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm really busy. Like, like, oh, I'm really busy. I'm really tired. Definitely. I think now is probably the busiest I've ever been in like a professional setting in a while. Certainly like with our companies, but I like it. I mean, I, I occasionally feel overwhelmed by it, but it's not like I need this to stop. It's just like, oh, okay, like it's exciting because there's stuff coming. Yeah. Like busy is a good thing. I used to get mad when I was busy. Like if I got really busy at my old job, like at work, I knew that it was taken away from things that I wanted to be doing mm -hmm. more than work. And you're still getting paid the same amount. <laughs> right. Because you're on salary. But yeah. here it's like the thing I'm busy with is also conveniently something that I really love to do. And as any like entrepreneur can attest to, like the more you put in, the more you get out, which is hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Or you just waste a lot of time and money. So hopefully it's the former. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I don't think busy needs to be a bad word or negative. You'd be like, I'm really busy, but I'm I'm going to make time for you because yeah. you're important. But still, I think that person might be thinking, well, do they really have time for me? So maybe don't use the word busy I or always will. be like, I'm busy, but in a good way. Yeah, I usually qualify it. Yeah. I say like, and I don't want that to sound negative. It's just like, I don't want to lie to you and be like, yeah, I'm totally fine. Like very very calm. There's nothing <laughs> in my life that's like chaotic. Yeah. I don't like to lie to people. Yeah. I'm busy, but you're important too. Yeah. Well, my story is not that. So I eat pretty much the same lunch every day. In the last few months, I've incorporated a treat in my lunch in addition to the cookie treat that I have, Okay, which is just a cookie, but it's delicious. Yeah. So it's a treat. But I have also started adding in baked Lay's chips. Interesting choice for chips. Yeah. But I don't know. I like them. I really mm -hmm. do. But I'm at the bottom of the bag. And you know how they have like 
all the chips that have been crushed at the bottom of the bag. So I put like a little bit of a handful of chips, probably like what would be two chips, but crushed into 12 to 14 tiny pieces. Yeah. And one of the pieces got stuck under my tongue in that like Mm -hmm. area and dug into my under mouth. Okay. Yep. Like in that hard, but also soft. It's called a palate. The palate, the under palate. Yeah. Like I had to like really, really work to get it out. Yeah. I've definitely had that happen where food. So this is like a weird thing. I eat the tails of shrimp. Like when there's tempura shrimp or something in like a sushi roll, I just eat the tail. I always kind of have done that unless it's a really So big you're one. poo-pooing my Lay's baked chips, but you eat shrimp tails. Yeah. It's a good source of collagen okay. naturally occurring, by the way. Okay. But anyways, those are really bad offenders for doing that. Like getting stuck in your mouth or like in your gums like down by your teeth. I know your pain. Yeah. But for me, it's shrimp tails. It was, it was startling and upsetting. Yeah. So I don't know. Do I buy a new bag? Do I never eat the bottom of the bag of Lay's chips? Maybe like, you do, how do I avoid them? This? Like you suck on them. Just okay. <laughs> soften them up. More, be more careful when eating. So that's just a word of warning. Yeah. But it literally just happened. Yeah. I like the Terra. I'm on a Terra chip kick because I don't really like baked Lay's. See, I don't like the Terra chips. I do. And it's not because I think they're more natural, even though that's how they're marketed. I really like an offensively hard chip. Yeah. Yeah. See, when I eat the Terra chips, I can only have the red ones and the orange ones. Where I'm like, give me the The um, parsnip ones. Is mm -hmm. that what they are? Well, there's parsnip. And then there's also some sort of like Central American root (laughs) that's like very hard. Yeah. I I avoid those ones. I wish that. And then when you get the proper beets, like when you get the beets and sweets, the beet chips are actually also quite hard. Yeah. I love those. It works out if we did have Terra chips because we could just segregate them and you could have the soft ones and then I could take the danger chips. Yeah. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Body composition. Well, Re- recomposition. Yes. This episode's been scheduled because the Instagram is largely kind of like unscheduled, which might shock you to hear. But sometimes I realize that we've done an Instagram post about something and then there's also a podcast scheduled on that topic. And so we're in that situation because I just did a body recomposition Instagram post last week. And this offers a really nice opportunity. Well, to it just will talk. now be three weeks ago. So it was posted on the week of September 11th. Yeah. Like 18th, September. September 18th. Yeah. Yep. So if you're looking back for it, but yeah, this offers a nice platform to, I guess, expand on a topic that's got a little bit more nuance and information then you can like reasonably fit into an Instagram post. Side note, we get a lot of people. I mean, our Instagram has a lot of followers and we love that. But occasionally we'll get people who just sort of call out what has been left out of a post. So on this one, someone called out like, well, shouldn't you be talking about protein intake if we're talking about lean mass gains and just like things like context things. And it's hard to think about like including every single bit of context into every single it's, it's like crazy that people hold us to that standard because i'm like look like we're trying to keep these videos like 90 seconds or less most of them we can't fit it all in it would be super boring especially because I, I think the reason why people come is because it's like good information kind of like distilled into digestible language and length is do you really want me to be like well in the case of this or you know, but if you are this, like mm-hmm. it just really waters down the, and we're not trying to glaze over important things. And we try to include some in the caption, but I'm like, come on, give us a break here. Okay. I have an embarrassing <clears throat> story. Okay. In high school science class, 
the teacher was explaining how when you freeze water, it becomes less dense. So that's why ice, even though it's solid, floats in water. Yes. And so I, I'll never forget this because I was so embarrassed. I was just like, oh my gosh, I've become this person. I put up my hand thinking I'm so smart, but also genuinely curious as to why sometimes when you put ice in a glass, then you put water in, the ice doesn't rise to the top. (laughs) No, I did. And the teacher basically was like, it's because the ice is just like melted to itself and stuck to the bottom of the (laughs) glass. And that was just like one more thing. It just reminded me of that because it'd be like expecting the teacher to be like, in the case of when the ice doesn't rise to the top, you can assume that it's stuck, you know. Well, with a certain column width (laughs) in a vessel containing water, the surface tension would be such that the ice may not rise immediately to the top. Is like that what you were expecting? Like, oh, thanks, Alex, for bringing attention to this little bit of nuance that I definitely should have mentioned. Yeah, and I was just like, ugh. I don't have a ton of memories from my childhood, but I do remember that day. Uh, The traumatic ones. And I don't think I ever spoke in class ever again. Yeah. Have you seen the TikTok trend that's like, what's one word that you pronounced wrong or you pronounced incorrectly one time and it's haunted you ever since? And this guy, I haven't watched all of them, but the one I saw Organism. <laughs> I didn't see that one. Is that the one you saw? No, but that did happen in my science class. Well, so what is it? Orgasm versus organism. Oh, someone said someone that? Someone said that. His name was Scott. <laughs> did he understand what an orgasm was? I don't know, but everyone else did. Oh. <laughs> Poor guy. That's more embarrassing than the ice. Yeah. No, the one that I saw yesterday was man's laughter. He's like, man's laughter. Oh, 15 to 20 (laughs) for man's laughter. (laughs) I thought that one was really good. That one is good. Yeah. That's that would be embarrassing. If I never know what's actually true on the Internet and what's just being put out there to be humorous. But I also once thought that there was a mistake in a book. And it was when there were two words of the same word together. So like. It, it. Oh, yeah. That sometimes happens. Uh-huh. I don't know. I can't say I should have maybe looked, but sometimes that happens. And it's like normal for a sentence. It's, yeah. It's grammatically I did correct. A, I did an is, is sentence yesterday. Yeah. Maybe that's what it yeah. was. And of course, I'm like, as my n- usual annoying self okay. in grade five or whatever it was, <laughs> went to the teacher and was like, there's a mistake in this book. Oh, my gosh. And she had to be like, well, n- well no. But you know what? School is for learning. And I did learn on that day. Yeah. Sometimes you just learn the hard way. That's fine. That's okay. No stupid questions, right? Just stupid people. (laughs) Yeah. So anywho, body recomposition. It's like, it's one of those goals. Are you okay if we get into this now? Yes. I mean, I can do more story time. No, I I think we should start. Feel free to interject with more tidbits. Body recomposition is like a very common goal. People sign up. They're like, well, I want to gain muscle mass and lose body fat. Like that's the goal, which is like kind of funny because we have it in our intake form. You have to pick one or the other. So people pick one and be like, well, I also want to do this. But then it's explaining you have to pick one of like five and then you have to say, explain your goals in your own words. Yeah. And that's when people say, I want to gain muscle, lose fat, improve my health, improve my relationship with food, improve my performance and look amazing. Yeah. The first time that like when I remember hearing about body recomposition, it wasn't even called that. I think we all probably have heard people in the past say like, I just, you know, I want something that's going to turn my body fat into muscle. Like that's something that people have said before. I don't know where that came from, but you can't turn fat tissue into muscle tissue. That's not possible. 
People still say it. But the end result of doing that, if you could do that, would be body recomposition. So the simultaneous loss of body fat and gain of muscle mass. And sometimes that results in the scale going down and sometimes it results in the scale not changing and sometimes it results in the scale going up. But it's kind of long been thought about it and and like talked about in the fitness and nutrition space as this like impossible thing. Well, no, you have to do one or the other. Like people will say that you have to either lose fat, you have to be in a calorie deficit and losing fat, or you have to be eating at maintenance or above and gaining muscle, aka a bulk. Yeah, like the bulk cut method. And I think a lot of people believe that. And there's certainly a, I guess, a population of people where that's still how you have to do it. But where does this goal come from? You know, when I posted this last week, someone did make a good comment in that you don't necessarily have to chase body recomposition or, you know, specifically set out to change your body composition. It will just change across the decades, which is definitely true. People who have been athletes their whole lives. Maybe they were athletes in high school. Maybe they were collegiate level athletes and they kept up an exercise routine. Like those people probably don't and have never worked super hard to look a certain way, to have a high, you know, lean body mass, to have lower body fat percentage. And I think we both fall into that category as like never having put a lot of focus on doing one or the other. You just kind of do exercise and eat reasonably well for like an extended period of time. And then you end up with what you have. But I think a lot of people get into their adult lives either, you know, maybe they were an athlete as a kid and then they, you know, took a decade off or maybe they've never been an athlete. And so they, they're really kind of starting from zero. And so there's kind of this like timeline attached to it. Like, yes, we understand that you can give it 20 years and like things will work out. What if someone's like mid thirties? And they just want to have faster results. Like they just want to like put in some concerted effort on improving their body composition. And they want to do it in a smaller time frame of like a couple of years. So I think that's kind of where these goals come from and where the desire to do both has come from. You know, the do one or the other that applies to people like us. If we were to like, look, I want to put on five pounds of muscle and I want to drop my body fat percentage. Well, I certainly I'm not going to be able to do that while eating a calorie deficit. It would be literally impossible. So for people with a high training age who are carrying like a large amount of muscle already, like are relatively close to what their genetic potential for gaining lean muscle mass is, they have to do one or the other. They have to strength train and eat in a calorie surplus to gain muscle. And then they have to continue to strength train and eat in a calorie deficit to lose body fat and retain as much of that muscle mass as they can. That's to do it in a short period of time. Yeah. I mean, that's like I said, if I were to like, if if, let's say if you wanted to gain five pounds of muscle Mm -hmm. and there was no time frame, yeah, you could do it without gaining a ton of extra fat. If you did it over the course of a year or two years, I would say if you wanted to do it over the course of like three to six months, mm -hmm. then yeah, you'd have to add more stimulus and also more food. Yeah. Which could potentially increase your body fat. And then you would have to do like a cut if you wanted to lose the body fat. But I think most people are going to increase their body fat. Like it's really hard to do what they, you know, quote unquote, a clean bulk unless you're on like BEDs of some mm-hmm. sort. But, but most, if you do it over an extended period of time. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at like a five year goal versus or even for, yeah, like a three to five year, which I just want to have more muscle mass. Sure. You can eat at or like slightly above calorie maintenance and just like train your ass off in power lifts and 
accessory work and bodybuilding and get there for sure. It's when that compresses. Yeah. That you have to, I guess, manipulate the inputs in a more specific way. It takes a more specific approach. Yeah. And then considering that when you gain five pounds of muscle, you're also probably going to gain three pounds of body fat, maybe even more depending on your genetics. Then you have to take the concerted effort of reducing that if you want to reduce it. But, you know, also five pounds of lean mass along with three pounds of fat mass is not going to look like you might actually look leaner, even though you've gained body fat. But we'll talk about that later. But yeah, that's kind of the approach for experienced athletes. And what got me thinking about this was just seeing a couple of people on the Internet debate, like the nuance of like, well, how to do a bulk and how to do a cut and what kind of time frame you're looking at. And when you actually look at the research and there's a meta-analysis that came out in 2021, I think, called Energy Deficiency Impairs Resistance Training Gains and Lean Mass But Not Strength, a meta-analysis and meta-regression. And they did two analyses. Really what the key takeaway is that if someone is relatively untrained, they're not close to their genetic potential for lean body mass and they're carrying some body fat, like you're looking at BMI. I mean, BMI is not the best number, but I think they said BMI of 30 and above, people typically respond really well to recomposition protocols and even like 25 and up, there wasn't like a specific correlation. So they're kind of like extrapolating that. But yeah, essentially like relatively untrained, new to training, carrying body fat and not a lot of lean muscle mass. Those people do really well with recomposition protocols, which is a calorie deficit plus a strength training program to gain lean muscle mass and lose body fat at the same time. And I'm like, that's most people. Yeah, it is. That's most people. And the statistic that I put in the Instagram post that always like shocks people when they read it is that only 5% of the US population exercise for 30 minutes or more five days a week. And in my opinion, if you're not exercising 30 minutes or more five days a week, the likelihood that you fall into the category of people that has lean body mass that's high enough, it has a training age that's so high that prohibits you from doing both, the likelihood that you fall into that category of people is basically zero. Well, and on top of that, the majority of people who are providing the right stimulus for muscle growth in that 30 minutes of activity five days a week is also low. And even if you are strength training, it's like, hate to break it to you, but like Peloton strength doesn't really count. Yeah. There's subcategories of like mm-hmm. athletes. Like there's people who are so grossly beginner that they're going to adapt to anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are people where like sitting on their couch and standing up is resistance training. Walking can be resistance training for some people. Yeah. Once you get outside the window of like really extreme newbie gains, like you do have to be on a somewhat progressive strength training program to have any expectation of like lean muscle mass gain. So, The way that the meta-analysis kind of outlines it was they defined the type of strength program. In meta-analysis, they they basically look at the existing research that's out there and they decide what criteria does it have to have in order to be included in the meta-analysis or regression. And so they looked at specific strength training programs, how they were designed. It has to be a hypertrophy program. It has to be progressive. They had to kind of cast a wide net for duration, but they were looking at studies that were up to like six to 12 months. So when you put people on a progressive strength training program, and then you combine that with a calorie deficit, and the range of calorie deficit that they looked at was basically started at 100 calories and then went from there. And what they found was that at a calorie deficit of 
500 calories per day, that is the inflection point that fully attenuates lean muscle mass gain, which means you completely stop gaining lean muscle mass there. And after that, you're losing body fat. Yes. But you're also losing muscle mass. You're not eating enough. Yeah. Like your body's just not getting the signal that it needs. The like low energy status, when your calories are too low, your body activates this kinase, AMPK, which is 5-adenosine monophosphate activated protein kinase, which generally promotes catabolic processes and impedes anabolic processes. Means that this thing is just going to like shut down new tissue formation of any kind. So that, you know, 500 calories a day is where we see a hard stop, but the effect size, like clearly being below zero, they establish that the effective calorie deficit is really more likely to be between like 100 and 300 calories per day. So actually even less than 500 calories per day, because you're looking at individual studies that are included. 500 calories is the hard cutoff, but it's like you operate with a range. And so to safely build muscle mass while losing fat mass, you're looking at a pretty small calorie deficit, especially when, you know, most people pop into MyFitnessPal and they say, I want to be this weight. And MyFitnessPal says, you got it, bud. Here's your thousand calorie per day deficit or, you know, potentially even more. Like people are just used to working with these really large deficits. I think that the number 500 stands out. It does. Because of the math. And the math is there are... 3,500 calories in a pound of fat, seven days a week. So to lose one pound of fat per week, you have to eat 500 calories less than what you are eating now to maintain Mm -hmm. per day. Yeah. So a lot of people cling to that 500 number. Mm -hmm. Which is in this case too big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I thought that was really interesting. And then obviously like the duration. Reasonably, you are looking at a duration of six to 12 months. You can start to see like some of the studies were on the shorter side, but that's not really telling you much outside of like these people might just be so beginner. Like you can't guarantee that progress is occurring because of like the program or because of the energy deficit until you really get to that like six months marks and you start to see what the pattern looks like over time. So yeah, two to 300 calories. That's what like kind of we say to people and then like a very well designed. And frankly, if you've never done a like specific strength training program, they're a little bit on the boring side. Like it's repetitive. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who are used to, you know, exercising to get a good sweat struggle with the repetitive nature of progressive strength training programs. Like, yeah, you are going to be squatting every Tuesday for the rest of your life. Yeah. Hate to break it to you. <laughs> At least for now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other approach is so if you have someone who, you know, maybe not like super high body fat levels, but, you know, they have body fat, they could eat a little closer to maintenance you know, slight energy deficit, but let's just say, let's just call it maintenance. So say a person's eating at maintenance, they could make progress with strength and with lean mass and their body fat percentage can go down while the scale goes up. And when you think about that, and I think a lot of people really struggle with this concept. And even when like, you may not be seeing a rate of weight loss that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're like, you're looking in the mirror, you're doing body measurements. You're like, well, this is weird. Cause like I'm seeing progress there and I'm seeing progress here, but I get on the scale and it's only down by like 0.1 pounds. And so it's like the way that we think about progress can get a little bit skewed. But when you think about it, you know, gaining, let's call it two pounds of muscle and losing one pound of fat, that's a huge shift in stored body energy. Cause 
remember, muscle is metabolically very active and fat is metabolically inactive. And so you're seeing this big swing, but potentially the scale is up a pound. So anyways, you have to be willing to think about it like that and rely on other measures of progress, like your eyeballs. Yeah, your eyeballs looking at your body or the way your clothes fit or, or measurements. If you're doing a strength training program, hello, what like how your performance is. Yeah. You should be tracking your weights every week. Yeah. And those should be going up. And that's another benefit of progressive strength training is like you know what you need to squat based on your prior weeks and you can yeah. see the changes in the weight that you're lifting. Yeah. By, you know, PRs or just a weight feeling lighter, being able to do more reps at a certain weight. Yeah. Exactly. So how do we compare a recomposition timeline to let's take the same person and put them on like a traditional bulk cut cycle? And I still think the traditional cycle would be faster, but I don't think it would be as enjoyable. It kind of stinks to go through a bulking cycle, a cutting cycle. You're doing a lot of manipulation with diet. You're doing a lot of manipulation with training and it might speed it up by, I don't know, 10 to 15 percent. But like, I think beginners benefit from a more moderate approach that allows them to kind of make progress in both areas that they want to. The idea of a beginner bulking, but like that just doesn't make sense in my brain. The number of people who come in and usually it's not usually they don't go right for the bulk. Usually what happens with beginners is they go right for the cut, but they have no muscle. So they end up just being smaller versions of themselves and they don't actually look any different. They just weigh 10 pounds lighter or however much. Yeah. I mean, that's it too. And they probably lose what little muscle that they do have. Well, exactly. And that creates this weird, like, I mean, a bit of a tangent, but the yo-yo diet cycle and how it really has a negative impact on body composition across time period, because you take someone who has, let's just call it like 40 pounds to lose. And they're like, I'm just going to crash diet. I'm just going to lose it. And then they do that. Maybe they cut their calories by 800 calories a day or more than that. So they lose weight, but they're losing a significant amount of muscle mass. And so then if they're in the pattern of yo-yo dieting, then they get to that weight and they say, oh, screw this. And they gain a bunch of weight back. And then they say, well, I'm going to lose 40 pounds again because I did it once. And so then they lose it and then they gain it all back. And each time you go through that cycle, you have less and less and less lean mass. So not only is your body composition shifting in a negative way, but you're also your base metabolic rate, which depends largely on your lean body mass, is going down. So essentially, the amount of room you have to play with calories gets smaller and smaller and smaller each time you do that because you're just losing lean body mass. Whereas if you do combine a, you know, a strength training program with a more moderate calorie deficit, even if you're someone you're like, you know, I do want to cut some weight, just do your best to retain the muscle that you have while you do it. So that when you get to whatever weight you think you should be at, you're not just, like you said, a smaller version of, you know, your starting point, which can feel very frustrating. And then, you know, what you do from there, maintain, keep protein up, keep strength training. Yeah. And those are the things that you would do during the cut, eating enough protein during the cut, which often if someone's not paying attention to their macros doesn't happen. No, they just eat less by like skipping meals, which contain protein. Mm -hmm. And then they don't, you know, if you're on a cut and we've talked about this before, if you're on a cut, like your sleep is sometimes impacted if the calorie deficit is too high. And so that's going to impact your ability to retain muscle mass or build any, and then a progressive strength training, like providing the right stimulus, going to be tired. Yeah. Like an extreme calorie deficit, like getting to go and push hard in the gym is not going to be good. No, it's not going to be there. So really it's just, I don't know. It's a vicious cycle. It is. You're just 
I don't know, going down a path that isn't going to be productive in the short term or the long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you start introducing all kinds of reds risk into it. And like you said, there's so many factors that contribute to like effectively adapting to training and safely reducing body weight that if you just get too extreme with it, it gets really impossible to do. I was thinking about how this applies to me and I guess you to some degree, because I've been strength training for over 20 years. I was lifting as a teenager for my sports and I don't ever remember going through a bulk or a cut, even in the last 10 years, like an actual bulk or cut. I think like I did start tracking macros at one point to like lean out slightly for an event I had plenty of time for, and it was gymnastics heavy. So I wanted to be a little bit lighter, but for the most part, I don't remember like bulking or cutting or even caring enough. However, thinking back, there were like moments in my life and like long periods of time where like I did have more body fat Mm -hmm. or my training did change. And this like was somewhat sports related. Like, you know, I was ski racing. It was winter. We weren't doing any dryland training. We were traveling. I remember being bigger. Yeah. And then in the summer, like you go home, you're playing sports, you're, you know, working on the golf course, you lose weight, probably maybe not eating as much because you're not in school, like whatever it may be. And then it's the same thing seasonally for me. Sometimes like I'm a little bit leaner in the summer because I'm like exercising a lot more and probably eating a little bit less just because of the heat if I'm not tracking my calories. And then winter, you know, it shifts. And I think that's very true for a lot of people, especially with the holidays being in the winter or even vice versa. Maybe they're healthier in the winter. So I think that like the seasonal shifts can help kind of like there's a little bit of wiggle room where, you know, you you might go into a phase of like four to six months of like, okay, I'm in a surplus, I'm lifting, I'm going to gain some muscle mass. And then you get into the summer and you bike or you run more and you lean mm-hmm. out a bit. So I think there's also that, that you don't see that happening. Well, I think a lot of people fight it and they fight it and it's not necessarily their fault. I think what would be natural for humans is in the fall and the winter to really back off and get rest and catch up on things. You know, unfortunately, the way that we work and live our lives doesn't really offer that. But a lot of people do experience more fatigue in the wintertime. They're more tired. Their body's kind of like calling for more rest. It's darker. It's darker. You're less active. So you can basically just decide to stop fighting that as much. And it doesn't mean you throw in the towel and do nothing, but maybe you back off from intense training or like a lot of cardio and you do more strength training. You do things that are a little bit, you know, easier where your heart rate's managed and you combine that with an intelligent nutrition approach and you sort of take advantage of this seasonal toggle that you have. And then when it comes time for spring, you're like, all right, the days are longer. I feel more motivated to get on my bike or to get outside and run. So you make adjustments there. So you can kind of use the seasons to your advantage too, to manipulate intake and activity. I think the big takeaway here is timeframes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like people, and it's very rare that I've ever put anyone on like a cut or a bulk. I've, I've done it, but it's very like limited. Cause like we said, most people don't need that, but it's like, people get really tired of bulks quickly. Yeah. It's like, well, when can I cut? When can I cut? It's like, you've been doing this for a month. Yeah. You're not even close. You're not even close. <sighs> yeah. 12 weeks is like minimum time commitment for bulk cut cycles. And that's on the shorter end, to be honest. I think most people would benefit from like, if you're doing a traditional route, like eight months of bulking and that doesn't mean eating your face off and gaining like it's control to a degree, eight months. And then you spend like four months in a calorie deficit of the year, like basically double your time eating at maintenance or above and compared to eating below maintenance, where I think a lot of people do the opposite. 
they want to diet for eight to 10 months out of the year. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, well, I'll go to maintenance for, you know, a couple months, but no more than that. And, but they expect these like monumental physical results. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. Like there's a limit, like at which point calorie deficits just, they aren't good. And then you go the other route, which is eating a very conservative calorie deficit with strength training to body recomp without like an intentional cut or bulk. And that is also a very long period of time, mm -hmm. like six months minimum for most people. I would say six to 12 months, maybe more. Yeah. But the cool thing about that is eventually, I think it just sort of naturally you phase into like a maintenance phase where you're eating what you need to perform and feel good. You're happy with your body composition and like you literally just ride off into the sunset. But it's still like that's a long buy-in period when most people conceptualize dieting as like 30 to 90 days and then you're done. Yeah. And it's like, no, this is. This is like a you year need to support your training. And that's just what you do. And form follows function. Yeah. It's just what you do. You just eat what you need to, to support your workouts and your life and your health and your wellness and your longevity and have the balance that works for you. And you train hard and that's what you do until the end of time. Right. And it just is who you are. That's the goal. Yeah. But at first, like, you know, new to strength training, it's hard. Because you're going to feel like beginner at everything. You're yeah. going to worry about getting hurt. Yeah. Like you probably be, will get hurt. Yeah. Because your body isn't used to it. And that's okay. You just like recover and then get back into it. Yeah. I don't mean like really hurt, but no. you're going to get like nigglies. A lot of people like who've never squatted before, like, oh, who sit at desks all day. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. They're like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> but eventually you work through that and you become like a stronger, more resilient version of yourself as well. Yeah. There's so many more benefits beyond body comp, too. Listen, sitting um, in a chair doesn't hurt you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know what will sitting hurt in you? a chair does hurt me sometimes. Yeah. Sitting in a chair and not strength training will <laughs> eventually hurt you. <laughs> when I first started doing like a lot of squatting, with like Olympic lifting training as like, you know, CrossFit kind of, but I was doing more specific. My knees hurt so bad. Like I was mid twenties and I was like, I'm going to have to quit this. Like <laughs> my knees are torn up. It just felt like tendonitis. Like they hurt every single day. And I was like a knee sleeve person <laughs> for a long time. Just to like keep them warm. Yeah. I would like massage them. I would put like blue emu on them. <laughs> just like whatever I could tiger bomb. And one day they stopped hurting. And I don't remember exactly what that day was, but literally like I'm 10 years older now, mid thirties compared to, you know, mid twenties with excruciating knee pain. Hello, probably from like having a desk job and, and doing some running, but not doing much else. Now I don't have knee pain at an age where people are like, just wait until you're mid thirties. You're going to have so much pain Or I'm like, no, I feel really good. I actually feel better than when I started training. But like if I had started training and I'm in that much pain, I'm like, no, I have to stop. I'm going to hurt myself. I would never would have trained my body to the point where it was just more well-balanced and had better, you know, muscular development that can support my joints Yeah, to a point where they don't hurt me anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, a common thing that physios say, you know, there's stretching protocols, there's mobility protocols, and we're not on here to poo-poo or like talk about the science on that. But when I first started CrossFit and squatting very intentionally year round, my hips were broken. Yeah. Like they were so tight that they would ache. And like, I would go get like physio done and my back would hurt when my hips were getting like worked on. Cause it yeah. was so tight. And then over time, like my hips never hurt now, mm -hmm. but it's because the best way to get more mobile in a movement is to do the movement. Mm -hmm. And that is squatting and squatting. I mean, again, it's just, this isn't the time of the place, but it's so functional. Yeah. And eventually you work through some of that stuff. You get more mobile in those movements that mm -hmm. are functional and 
yeah, you just become much more resilient and you understand the value of movement. So maybe you don't sit as much in your desk. Yeah. Or yeah. you quit your job and you get a job in health and fitness like us. And you, <laughs> yeah. you don't have to sit for eight hours in a day. I sometimes sit for I a do while. too <laughs> in a couch because I don't have an office. Yeah. I do try to stand up and move around a but, little bit. Yeah. But that's just kind of to talk a little more at length about body recomposition and how attainable that is for most people out there. All you need is a sort of intelligent approach to both the nutrition part of it to establish a very moderate calorie deficit that is also sufficiently high in protein. And then also a training program that meets your needs and is progressive and heavy enough to start moving you in the direction of lean body mass gains. And, you know, the third component is time. It's being patient. It's getting excited about doing the work that will work if you stick with it for more than 30 to 90 days. Like that's the secret sauce is the time. And yeah, side note, before we end this, I have a client who is about to finish 75 hard. She's 10 days away. Nice. I know. It's actually impressive because that is not easy. (laughs) But this is her third time trying it. She's never made it past like day 17, I think. But she is taking, it's like a much more moderate approach. I was going to (laughs) say, and then what happens after the 75th day? I think she's experienced enough where she'll be fine. Yeah. But, you know, her workout, because it's like two workouts a day, like that's stipulated. And I'm like, well, that's like, you never get a rest day. And one of them has to be outside. So, you know, her second workout of the day is you know, a vigorous walk or like, great. you know, That's something smart. on the shorter side versus yeah. trying to like crush yourself with outdoor CrossFit. I've seen like a little bit of a change in her perspectives on things. So, you know, we poo poo 75 hard a lot, but I will, I'll dial that back just a little bit because I think this may actually help her. I still don't think that doing 75 hard as like a beginner and like, you know, really crushing yourself is worth it, but it's kind of cool to see someone finish it. One of my clients said that they did 75 hard after they finished their like exams and stuff, they had the summer off. Yeah. And she was like thinking back, it was great. It kind of kickstarted, took me back to like who I am after being done school, but mm-hmm. it wasn't possible to do that if she were working because yeah. it is very time consuming. Yeah. And you don't get a day off. No, this person doesn't work. Okay. Also yeah. worth noting. <laughs> I mean, she has kids, which is work. Yeah. I don't want to say that she doesn't work. She has a flexible schedule yeah, for sure. Alrighty. Well, thank you for listening. This is on the shorter side, so you're off the hook and we hope that you enjoyed it and be careful with those chips, people. Dude, and the shrimp tails and anything else hard and pointy that you eat. (laughs) I don't know. What else is there? I don't know. I don't know. If you think of something, let us know. Yeah. Thanks for the support. Like, subscribe, share, do your thing, and we'll catch you on the next one.